Welcome to episode 331 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Monday 19th of June 2023. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. In other words, they make the kind of bikes that they want to ride. Turn has e-bikes for every type of rider, whether you're commuting, taking your kids to school, or even carrying another adult. Visit www.turnbicycles.com, that's T-E-R-N, bicycles.com, to learn more. He's British, but he lives in America. Daniel Knowles is the Midwest correspondent for The Economist. And if you've been wondering who's writing that publication's War on Cars articles, it's him. I'm Carlton Reed, and on today's show, I talk with Daniel about his first book, Carmageddon. We were slightly interrupted by passing trains and other urban noisiness outside Daniel's home in Chicago, but we can still hear him loud and clear. Getting rid of cars, basically, is a is a climate change imperative. But Daniel, first of all, let's... So Carmageddon is your book, which that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about Carmageddon. But I'm fascinated by you before we get into your book. So you've moved around a bit, but you've always... Well, you're always at The Economist. Where, where, what's your trajectory in journalism? Uh, mostly The Economist. I've been The Economist about 11 years now. Um, but before that, I did work at The Daily Telegraph for just under two years. That was kind of my first job and, and a little bit like less than four months. With my, my very first job was at City AM, um, uh, kind of writing financial advice columns at the age of 22 when I had no money. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and and then you've gone to, you've travelled the world with The Economist. You've, you've I mean, and uh, Nairobi, where my son is travelling to at the moment from a mountain bike or gravel race. Uh, you gave me some tips on that. Thank you very much. Uh, you've also been to other mega cities around the world. Um, so to, just describe w- w- where you've travelled and 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 how that has maybe informed uh, parts of the book. So I've been very lucky. Yes, as you say, I've lived all over. My first foreign posting was in Washington, D.C. Um, I was then moved uh, to Nairobi uh, and I lived in, in Africa, or lived in Kenya for three years and covered Africa for three years. Um, and then I lived in Mumbai for a bit, a bit, bit less than a year. Um, and then I worked on the foreign desk uh, in London and I was kind of able to travel uh, all over the world. My title was International Correspondent, which was a great rack. It was just like I could go anywhere um, before they're moving here to Chicago, um, where I'm more limited, sadly, to the Midwest, although it's a great job. Um, so, yeah, so I kind of roamed around and I think it was particularly working in Africa and traveling to all these different African capitals and seeing how much, even though most people can't afford cars, they are being built out for cars nonetheless. And that's making, you know, these very new, very fast growing cities very dysfunctional that kind of led me to write the book. It was seeing these same mistakes being made over and over again. What's that noise? That, how, how much can you hear that? Because that is a train coming past okay. the house. Okay, so I can pause for it. Um, 
it's... No, no, well, it's interesting that you live very close to a, a rail. You actually mentioned that in your book. You, you say you live five yes. minutes away from a, a rail station, and that's why you don't really use a. a... I think we'll leave that in. It's fantastic noise. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, we can get into to, to your car ownership. Uh, well, let's let's go into that because you, where you are in Chicago, you, you, you've told me a bit of your trajectory uh, through journalism. Uh, but in the book, you talk about uh, you you've actually you learned to drive in Washington. Was it age of twenty six? That's right. I actually learned to drive in London, but because I knew I was moving to Washington and I knew I'd have to be able to drive in the United States. So I hadn't previously bothered until that point. And then I I was sort of told in no uncertain terms, you know, if you're going to be covering America, you need to be able to drive. So I learned. Um, I learned mostly at Southeast London and then um, moved. Uh, the first time I rented a car in D.C., um, I drove on the wrong side of the road within roughly 90 seconds of getting in it and then got very confused by the fact that it was an automatic. Um, but... Uh, um yeah and that that i suppose was when i started driving because <laughs> so, <laughs> in the book you you just you self-describe yourself as a militant anti-car but we ought to establish that that's not you as being a non-driver you drive you just you're anti-car for other very very good reasons yeah, I mean, the thing is, I'm, I'm not even completely anti-car in the sense that I think there are things that cars are useful for and should probably, even in my ideal world, carry on being used for. Um, you know, I still like to, to rent a car occasionally to go on holiday. You know, I think driving like in the deep countryside or the middle of nowhere is, you know... Um, could be quite fun. I, I, you go on camping trips, that sort of thing, that would be very difficult to do without a car. Um, I think the problem, the argument of the book, is just that most car driving, A, is urban, and could be just done in a better way, that, that transport, and, and, and B, it's more destructive than, you know, it costs too little. We just all do it too much. So in because the, the way I, I, when I picked up the militant anti-car bit is because you, you're talking about in the, this the, the acknowledgement. I'm going to go. I'm going to go flipping backwards and forwards through your your, your book here metaphorically. Uh, so this is in the acknowledgements where you talk about the you know the editors at Apron's Books, the, the various people who who helped you along the way, and then you mention your wife Evelyn. Is your yes. wife? Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and and you said she's even more militantly anti-car than you. <laughs> Uh, so that that helps if you've got a partner who is as as, as militantly anti-car as you. That's going to help you not owning a car. Uh, yeah, I mean, so Evelyn Evie cannot drive, um, and I think gets even more frustrated uh, at um, sort of just cars on the road, the general frustration of getting around a city that's dominated by cars um, than I do occasionally. So she, she, she's fully on board uh, with, with this sort of manifesto, as it were. So that, that is helpful, um, even though when we do occasionally need a car, it doesn't mean that I have to do all the driving. Mm -hmm. Manifesto is a good way of describing it, because it, 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 or a polemic, perhaps. So, you, so Carmageddon, it kind of suggests that you think cars yeah yes you said they're they're sometimes useful but by and large they're probably not a societal good so the book is a polemic on why we should very much reduce not eliminate but very much reduce the amount of motoring yes yes exactly yeah i i think we could do with much much less uh driving than we currently have in the world i it's hard to put a figure on it but i i personally sort of think something like 80 to 90 percent of car journeys mm. are 
essentially unnecessary or ought to be unnecessary if we mm. designed our cities in a better way. Mm. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I speak as a militant anti-car person who drives. Um, so um, here's a bit where I'm going to be flipping backwards and forwards. So th that was the acknowledgements. Let's go right to the beginning um, and, and look at the dedication. Because I always like looking at dedications and acknowledgements almost before I do, do anything else in the book. So in the dedication, you, you dedicate it to your, your mum and dad. Um, who you say uh, would would put you in a, a bicycle child seat when it kind of when it wasn't even fashionable to do that. Now, elsewhere in the book, it talks about your dad being a policeman, a traffic policeman even, and your mum. I'm not too sure what she did earlier in her career, but she certainly latterly is a local uh, politician in in Birmingham. So tell me a bit about your parents and how they have shaped maybe some of your uh, your polemic or not so both of my parents were police officers um and now both retired and yes as you say my mom is now a counselor um and they I think when we were growing up, you know, they're now pretty well off as, as kind of public sector workers in their 60s tend to be good pensions. But I think when, when I was a child and very small, you know, my mum had had to leave work um, uh, because, you know, no paternity leave in those days in the police. Um, and money was a bit tighter and they had one car, but, um, you know, but then it was used a bunch and so we I think a second car was kind of an expensive thing to have so they they I remember I can't have been more than three years old or something but I have this memory of these bikes coming home these old mountain bikes and mum actually still uses the same mountain bike it's had a lot of repairs over the years but uh and they had the child seats from um and transported us around on them and I was given a bike pretty early and you know I'm probably age seven or eight going to put on Saturdays to go to a, a cycling safety course and my dad used to cycle uh, he was a traffic cop for a while but then he also worked most of his career on the police helicopter so he mm. worked at Birmingham airport and he used to cycle to the airport which I think was about seven or eight miles each way um, to get to work so that mum would have access to the car you know to mm. kind of um take us to whatever it might be or to get to work herself. Um, and, you know, I think that was really quite rare in those days and it was dangerous to work the bike lanes. Um, uh, it was quite hard work um, for dad. He later then switched to going on a motorbike um, and we had a motorbike instead of a second car. But biking was kind of, we grew up on it before there were bike lanes everywhere and I think before there were cycling strategies and um, at a time when, you know, car crash deaths were a lot higher in the UK than they are now. And I do remember, um, you know, a, a man of our acquaintance, I think it was the father of um, one of my sister's friends dying in a bicycle crash um, when I was quite young. So it was a thing. But uh, yeah, I kind of grew up assuming, yeah, bikes are a way of getting around. And uh, I feel like that was not... Um, such a common kind of idea then and now obviously mm. it very much is and birmingham is, is yeah. certainly the the if the the dreams of the the kind of the local um circulation plan when when it eventually gets put in is gonna you know, get rid of the concrete collar as you talk about in the book oh. and is going to make birmingham far more bicycle friendly 
it's amazing what what is happening in Birmingham, and it's uh, you know you could all like it to happen faster, I think. But whenever I go back, there are you know significant improvements in the kind of the bike lanes, um, they're building a tram as well, and it does seem like the city is began to work out you know that 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 the traffic congestion of being so car centric and i think it is you know if not the then among the most kind of car centric of all british cities um mm. is kind of damaging to the economy it slows down everybody being able to get to work the traffic is so bad in the morning and in the evening you know that that whether you're traveling by bus or by car um it just takes you twice as long to get to work as it otherwise would. And and that kind of limits, you know, the number of jobs that people can take and it's a problem. So I think they, they, they've, they've got their head around the fact that kind of cars and the car centricity of, of Birmingham is is an economic problem for the city um, and are trying to change that. So I feel optimistic about Birmingham. The one thing that still does depress me about it is how much kind of illegal parking there is everywhere mm. whenever I go home. People, it's not even illegal, just people park their cars everywhere which mm -hmm. feels weird to me mm. and for free and on you know other yeah. people's um streets um so you talk about your mum in the book mm. and and it's a segue into talking about ltn's low traffic neighborhoods because uh, you're saying your mum basically gets uh, has had an awful lot of stick as all local councillors have had on on local uh traffic neighborhoods and what you said and i cut this bit out uh, little is excited the residents of Moseley, which is the, the the suburb of Birmingham, more than the appearance of the LTNs on their doorsteps. People really care about where they can and cannot take their cars. When you say people there, do you think you mean boomers? Do you think people of your parents' age are the ones who get really fussed about this? Or is this across the ages? I think there's definitely a generational slant to it. I'm pretty sure you can find people of my age who would also get upset one way or another. Um, but I think, yeah, if you were to draw a kind of a line through it, you'd find that older people, you know, drive a lot more, um, are more likely to own cars and are more kind of incensed at the changes. Whereas I think probably on average, it's younger people and particularly, you know, people who might have small children who are keenest on getting rid of sort of rat running and, you you know, high speed driving down their their streets, their residential streets. But I think it's probably not as kind of it's not. A, I, I reckon that's the trend, but the, you can probably find people on both sides at every age. So on the LTN's front um, in, in the book, you, you, you talk about uh, that you, we know from actual studies what people value and they fear loss more than they value gain so is that so if you put a bollard in and and you prevent people you know in their cars going this this route they've always used that seems to really hurt people rather than it, it you, you express it as look you've suddenly opened up this whole neighborhood for people to walk and to cycle that's a gain but it's never really expressed it's always expressed as a loss in the local newspapers it's expressed as a loss isn't it never a gain Exactly. I think there's a kind of the funny thing is I think that that once they've been established with LTNs, that kind of loss aversion will go the other way. It will protect them because I think it is that think of people fear stuff that stops them, that forces them to change. They fear change and they don't necessarily value the benefits that they haven't previously 
kind of needed or used. Maybe they didn't need them, but they didn't sort of um, appreciate, oh, well, you know, we will have this quiet street. We'll be able to walk. We'll be able to cycle and feel safer doing so because they haven't been doing that at all to begin with because the idea never occurred to them. Um, so the people who tend to oppose LTNs are, yeah, those people who who have got into the habit of kind of driving everywhere and see it as a real loss. And the people who benefit, you know, they don't necessarily realize they're going to benefit until after it happens. But I think once they're introduced, it becomes, it sort of flips around. Mm. And the people who, you know, who benefit from, uh, they suddenly realize, oh, you know, isn't it great that there's much less traffic on our street that we feel a bit mm. safer? They will sort of fight to protect their LTNs. And I think the thing that I found that was most kind of revealing about LTNs, actually, particularly if you look at some of the consultation documents, and I was looking at these for Mosley, but it's kind of during it. Basically, people are very in favor of LTNs on their streets. They're, they're opposed to them on their neighbor's streets. Mm. Um, because, you know, nobody wants rat running cars on your own street. Um, but you do want to be able to rat run the street next next door yourself, you know? <laughs> so so it's kind of rational. <laughs> mm. Mm. Uh, the prisoner's dilemma, I think you describe it in the book. Yeah, it? exactly. Uh, so in, in, I live in Jesmond. I don't know how much you know of Newcastle. But we have, and this is, a, this is a, just a perfect 15-minute city. Jesmond, you can you can do everything. It's, it's like one and a half kilometres north. Uh, like one kilometer uh, wide, it's ju- it is just everything you could possibly need in a in a in a, a suburb of a big city is there in Jesmond. We've got this LTN, and what's has really surprised me is the amount of um, uh, motoring that people are clearly still doing in a very walkable neighbourhood. In that you know, there's a there's a petition, and people give their their address. And they actually say and where they want to get to. And it's all within Jesmond. And it's like, why are you driving half a mile? And why are you actually publicising that on a petition that, that you want to keep the streets open to motoring? And you're doing these incredibly tiny distances. So it's not trip chaining. It's not, you know, doing 20 mile journeys and you're really annoyed. It's literally 500 metre journeys. Now, that to me is absolutely crazy. Is that normal? Yeah, um, that's completely normal. I'm just trying to remember the exact statistic, but a, a majority of, you know, driving journeys are less than three miles, I think, in the UK. Um, and it's actually the same in the United States, even though, uh, you know, cities here are so much bigger and sprawlier and people do drive much further distances. The, the majority of trips in the United States are still less than five miles. So easily sort of within bikeable distance um, and, and walkable distance often too. And that's most of the traffic on our city streets. It's, you know, if we're talking climate impact, it's a bit more complicated because, you know, people drive between cities and those become you know in terms of the distance driven a lot more but in terms of kind of the traffic on your city streets and the number of individual journeys most of them are very short most people are driving quite short distances most of the time even with our cities as they are designed for sort of road transport um you could easily kind of replace a lot of these journeys um which is why i feel like it can change quite quickly so so (laughs) Many of the books, like like the book you're doing, and many of the people who talk about 
what you're talking about, like Brent Tadarin, like um, Jeff Speck, who's on the back of, of, of your book. They, 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 the thing they, they always say is the one thing you need is political will. You know, there's, there's, there's yes, you need money for doing these things. But at the end of the day, you've got to have politicians like your mum who are going to stick it out when they're getting an awful lot of stick by probably, if you actually looked at it, actually just a minority of people, that the majority of people probably quite like quiet streets, but are quiet because they don't actually say anything they want that. And it's the most, the kind of the, the gobbiest, the, the loudest. Uh, 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 and, and then people assume that that's what everybody wants, but not everybody wants that. Yeah, it's all very well saying, you know, you just need political will, but if something's unpopular, it would happen. But I think think about reducing cars is that it actually turns out to be popular. You know, politicians who do these often, at the time, very controversial things like introducing the congestion charge in London or, you know, backing LTNs, you know, they get all this pushback, these enormous fights, but five or ten years later, you know, Nobody ever wants to go back. Nobody ever thinks, oh, do you know what? Let's take those bike lanes out and put kind of the cars back in. Let's uh, rebuild the motorway. Um, uh, let's get rid of the congestion charge. It, um, I suppose Boris Johnson did reduce it back again. But in general, these things remain popular. And the popularity of sort of these measures actually increases after they're introduced and people see how well they work and they begin to adjust their habits. Um so I think the kind of, you know, the, the message to politicians, it's, it's partly, yeah, you know, the people who are loudest are not actually representative. And in general, you know, it's older people who, who drive are more likely to turn up at meetings and, and to shout. But if you stick with it, you'll find that there's a surprising number of people who really appreciate this change. And in, when you're, you're finishing the, 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 this book, it would have been uh, before all of the, the fuss on the conspiracy theories around 15-minute cities, uh, which probably would be a, a, a good addenda for your book. But what have you thought about that? That, that, that you know, your, your subject matter all of a sudden is, in effect, you know, subject to moon landing style conspiracy theories. How, how do you view uh, the uptake of these ideas? I mean, even when I was writing it, you could begin to see that, emerging um, a little bit. Piers Corbyn had been, mm. you know, starting out his sort of campaign against LTNs um, at home. And, you know, and there's been a long history in the United States, actually, of kind of conspiracy theories about this idea that uh, the United Nations is coming to take away your cars and make you live in a pod. But I think the extent to which that, that has spread and sort of... Um, grown and exaggerated and, and fitted in with all these other conspiracy theories in the last, you know, year or so caught me slightly off guard. And it is wild and it does come from this sort of, you know, I think it is a minority of people who are completely dependent on their cars. And yeah, so there's a, you know, there is a minority of people who have just become so used to using their cars for everything that I think any change is seen as extremely scary and and so impossible to comprehend that, you know, that they in their cars are actually making life worse for other people, that they, they are sort of drawn to 
these malevolent, these explanations that are, you know, an evil organization is trying to take away your freedom. Um, but because they see it as can, an assault. Yeah. You can walk everywhere. And so in all of these, these dystopias, which they, they talk about, Every single dystopia, you can still walk or cycle. It's literally a dystopia where you can't drive. So that's 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 where they're coming from, isn't it? It's, it's not this, that you, your freedom is being curtailed. It's the freedom to drive is being curtailed. There's this baffling way of which kind of drivers come to think, or some drivers. And I've seen it a lot recently following the debate over um, the congestion charge that they're planning to introduce in Manhattan, you know, which has taken... Decades. In fact, as I wrote about in the book, you know, the first congestion charge for Manhattan was proposed 50 years ago um, and never came in because of suburban opposition. And it's the same now. But the way people talk about it, the opponents, they say, oh, well, you know, what if I'm like dying of cancer and I need to drive to a doctor in Manhattan? And it's like, and it's, nobody's stopping you from driving to the doctor. They're going to charge you, you know, $20 to do so. And if you're going to see a doctor in Manhattan, $20 extra for a congestion charge is really the least of your financial worries. Um, <laughs> but people are talk about kind of being charged to drive as though they're being stopped from driving entirely. Um, there's this huge kind of commitment to the idea that roads should be free and that driving should be cheap that even just raising the cost of driving slightly in somewhere like Manhattan, where there really are, you know, God knows how many alternative ways of getting in and where the driving and the traffic, you know, obviously makes life worse for the majority of people who live there who don't drive. Even then, there's this kind of idea of, oh, if you stop, if you charge me a little bit of money to drive, you are restricting my freedom and you're stopping mm. me driving at all. And it's, it's baffling to me. It's like you, nobody's stopping you driving. They're just asking you to pay a bit more of the cost of it. And even in the most libertarian of conservatives become incredible socialists when it comes to cars. Right. And this is kind of what I think is a key thing is that... Um, when you raise the cost, the marginal cost of driving just a little bit, you know, by introducing a road toll or a congestion charge or getting rid of, you know, free parking, making people pay for, mm. for parking, you know, even just the market response of saying, you know, drivers should pay the cost of driving results in a big reduction in how much people drive. Well, if they're asked to pay to park, they will suddenly decide that that, that half a mile journey that we were talking about earlier, that actually, after all, they will walk it and they can walk it. Um, people mm. respond very dramatically to incentives. But we've devoted a huge amount of, of, of energy and time, especially here in America, but, but, but even at home, in making it not only like possible to drive everywhere, but sort of actively cheaper and easier than any form of transport. We insist on free parking. We insist on the roads being free. And then we're sort of surprised when everybody drives everywhere, when we've made that the easiest and cheapest way to get between places, you know, at the expense of every other form of transport. And then parking minimums. So like the, you know, you, you, you're designing somewhere for like Christmas Day, basically. The, the, the amount of shoppers you need to get in on a Christmas Day is where you, you build everywhere. Right, right. And this is a big problem in America, you know, in that particularly in the suburbs, but even here in Chicago, everywhere you go, there's free parking everywhere. And then you have restaurants, say, that 
occupy less space than than the parking around them or much less space so the whole city is sort of turned into these like difficult to navigate tarmac expanses this is in small town america one of the questions i keep getting asked is well what about rural areas and you know small villages in england or in france you've got to need a car to to kind of live there to get into a bigger town or that sort of thing but you don't need to use it for everything and even if you do drive you know into your village you know you might park at the edge of the village and then be able to walk to several different businesses you know around the village whereas small town america every single business has its own giant parking lot which you don't want to walk from one business to another you don't want to walk down main street um because you're having to cross these parking lots you know um it's kind of hostile architecture for walking uh and so everybody drives even the journeys that that are quite short um you know everybody has two or three cars in their households um so even in rural areas i think you know the amount of parking and the way the cities are designed it, it encourages more motoring than is necessary um and and i think what's what's unappreciated is that when you provide what people think of enough parking so that you don't have to fight for parking or pay for parking it makes getting around in other ways much more difficult it means that cities are spread out it means that public transport doesn't work as well walking doesn't work as well biking doesn't work as well and also it means that we don't have enough housing and one of the things that stops us building enough housing you know is that people get very worried about parking when when you have driving when when everybody drives around adding more people to your neighborhood having more people move in and more housing being built is seen as a really bad thing because it's like there's going to be more traffic on the streets and it's going to be you know it's going to be harder to find a parking space so it leads people to oppose development whereas you know if you come at it from the perspective of a non-driver you know from come from my perspective it's like oh new people mean that there'll be more support for the bars for the restaurants for the businesses so maybe it'll be a more exciting neighborhood to live in it's much less of a zero sum kind of game what are the ironies of the LTN in my little neck of the woods is that the local authority haven't really haven't really stressed this anywhere near enough but one of the reasons for it apart from the livability apart from clean air apart from you know all that kind of stuff is if you dig down into it, they're worried that the city's going to gum up. These these particular junctions that they're doing treatments on are going to gum up within five to ten years because there are lots of housing developments, car-centric housing developments, along this major arterial road out of the city that are brand new, are going to bring tens of thousands of car journeys into these congested, already congested roads. So they're basically trying to nip it in the bud now by removing a lot of the traffic from my area. But they've never really flagged it as, they never said that's what they're doing. If they explained it as, look, you're gonna gum up in this neighborhood within five to 10 years because of all this extra traffic, so shouldn't we be doing something about that? Maybe people would be more amenable to this if they realize it's the amount of cars coming down the, the pike that's gonna be a problem. But they don't. They kind of, they don't, they don't, local authorities aren't very good at explaining these things, are they? They're not. And people in general, I think, often struggle to think about incentives changing. And they struggle to think that people might act in a different way. So, you know, if you build a block of apartments and it doesn't have 
a parking space for every apartment, you know. Um, a, a lot of people who will oppose that apartment because they'll go, oh, but they everybody will have a car and uh, it will they'll be using my parking space and they'll be clogging up the roads. And there's this kind of assumption of like, well, everybody's going to drive everywhere, even if mm. the incentives are different. And they, they struggle to imagine how kind of traffic can just disappear. And actually it, it does. Um, but even engineers, I think, you know, another way of a different way this book could have been written is essentially the problem of traffic engineers. There's this sort of assumption that that traffic is kind of fixed and you can work from, oh, well, you know, an increase in X number of people in a particular place will mean an increase in, you know, X number of cars and so on. But actually, these things can change quite dramatically just dependent on, yeah, whether you do provide parking, whether you charge for the road. But local authorities, I think, tend not to think like that. And the development we get is kind of car-centric and it does add to traffic. And there's a failure to sort of recognize that and to to um to plan for that which then yeah leads to this sort of hostility it leads to congestion and we all just mm. end up enduring traffic jams even though everybody is much worse off as a result of them mm. now, daniel we're going to talk about the solutions so we've mentioned many of the problems uh with with uh, a car centric um and, and what you've mentioned in in, in carmageddon but after the ad break we're going to talk about some solutions, uh, certainly a, a solution in a, a few major uh, world cities, including Tokyo. But meanwhile, let's go across to David for an ad break. Hello, everyone. This is David from the Fredcast and, of course, the Spokesman. And I'm here once again to tell you that this podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn build bikes that make it easier for you to replace car trips with bike trips. Part of that is being committed to designing useful bikes that are also fun to ride. But an even greater priority for Turn is to make sure that your ride is safe and worry-free. And that's why Turn works with industry-leading third-party testing labs like EFBE and builds its bikes around Bosch e-bike systems, which are UL-certified for both electric and fire safety. So, before you even zip off on your turn, fully loaded and perhaps with a loved one behind, you can be sure that the bike has been tested to handle the extra stresses on the frame and the rigors of the road. For more information, visit www.turnbicycles.com to learn more. And now, back to the spokesman. Thanks, David. And we are back with Daniel Knowles, who's the author of uh, of Carmageddon. And I said before the break that we'll talk about we'll talk about problems. Let's talk about some solutions. And and yes, the the, the poster child for for that, or the poster child, city poster child for that, of course, Barcelona, of course, Paris. But one that's perhaps not talked about uh, so much, and that's Tokyo. Uh, Daniel, describe why why Tokyo is is in many respects the antithesis of everything you've been talking about so far, and and how. It, it's got to that state. So the reason I wanted to write about Tokyo and uh, in the book is that, you know, when you point to a lot of sorts of cities that are not very car-centric, you know, the sort of Amsterdam's or the Paris's, you know, a lot of people go, well, you know, they're old cities. They were built before the car. Of mm. course, it's easy to, to get rid of cars from them. But what about our city? Blah, blah, blah. And Tokyo is a city that was pretty much entirely rebuilt after World War II and continues to be rebuilt. 
um, you know, very few buildings there are older than about 30 years because of the earthquake risk. And mm. yet it is the biggest city in the world and it's the biggest kind of rich world city um, to have to not be mostly car dependent. In fact, it has some of the lowest usage of cars of any city in the world, of any city in the rich world at any rate. Um, to 12, 12%, I think I read in your book, was, yeah, was exactly. kind of that's, the standard, which is which is the yeah. third of, of what it is elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it actually more people cycle to get to work in Tokyo than do in Amsterdam, um, which you don't really expect. It's not seen as this big biking city. And it actually doesn't have like bike lanes or anything everywhere. It's just very quiet um, kind of traffic lanes. So you can cycle in the roads and it's fine because there aren't that many cars. But yeah, and the thing about Tokyo is that it was kind of luck that this happened. But in the 1950s, when the Japanese kind of economic miracle was really getting going, you know, and a lot of other countries were investing in building motorways and in kind of rebuilding their cities around the car. You know, the Japanese government sort of went, no, that's a really silly idea. We don't have enough money to build highways. And they did build highways, but the highways they built were all toll roads that were expected to be paid for by kind of tolls and by the motorists themselves because they had to raise debt because the government was putting all of its own sort of financial resources into reindustrializing. Um, the other thing that they did that that was incredibly kind of effective, and um, in 1957, the Japanese government passed a law that banned all on-street parking. Mm -hmm. And it is now very difficult to park in um, Tokyo. Um, because you, you, well, if you own a car, you have to have this certificate from the local police station saying that you own a parking space for it. And then if you want to drive anywhere, you've got to park it in a private garage. And so people do own cars, but they use them only for really for sort of going out into the countryside, that kind of thing. Because if you're going to kind of drive across the city, you know, and you're going to have to park it in the garage and then walk from the garage and pay for that, you might as well get the train. And mm. as a result, kind of Tokyo has developed basically entirely around its public transport um, over, you know, the last 70 years or so and and not around its cars. And, and cars have their place in Tokyo. People do use them and own them, but they're not the default sort of... Um, means of transport they're not really subsidized in any way if you want to use your car it's kind of an expensive tricky thing to do and so you'll only use it when it makes sense um and as a result everything else works a lot better the public transport the the, the trains make a profit um mm. you know they're private companies that make a profit um then because they don't need to be subsidized because uh because people use them and in the book you talk about the land value so basically the train company built these train stations then they owned the land and they rented it out and then that's how they make their money yeah so every big um kind of subway station or train station that you come out of in central tokyo usually has a shopping mall built on top of it and on top of the shopping mall you know a block of flats and so you come out of the station and then you can do you know all of your shopping there and get right on the train without having to kind of lug it through the streets and come out the other end um so it sort of minimizes how much walking you have to do with your groceries, that sort of thing. Um, 
but it also means that uh, the most kind of valuable commercial real estate is, is often owned by the train companies and helps pay for the construction of train lines. In one way, you'd, you'd quite like Tokyo to be a template for all future cities. But it's a, again, it's a pretty much an outlier, isn't it? So it's great to talk about uh, uh, Tokyo and that's that is definitely how you can do it. But it's it's actually creating that because we've made this motor centric um, cross for our own back. It's, it's very difficult to remove it. Yeah, that's the big challenge. I think you know, people are just literally invested in their cars now. And I think one of the great problems is that, you know, cars are not cheap to own. You spend a lot of money buying it, insuring it, um, maintaining it. But most of the cost of a car is just in owning it, whether or not you use it. And so when you kind of introduce extra charges, you know, to be able to park it or to be able to drive on a motorway or whatever, people get very upset because they think I'm already paying, you know, £8,000 a year or whatever just to own this thing. And now you're saying that I've got to pay even more to use it. But it creates this very perverse incentives where you 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 spend all this money buying a car um, but then using it is very cheap. And you're like, well, I've got it. I might as well use it all of the time. And that's how people get into the habits of driving these like, you know, half mile or one mile journeys by car because they've already got the car. And if we could change the incentives a little bit, if you could change it so that it's more to use up front, um, people would use their cars an awful lot less. And and you might actually be able to reduce the total cost of motoring. We could all be better off if that was the case. And that's kind of what they've done in Japan. Um, and what if only we could kind of do it here. But it's hard to adjust when everybody's already made that decision to be built, build their lives around the car. So since the mid-1960s and the Smead report, we've known that road pricing is going to be inevitable. And yet it's an, in something that's inevitable that hasn't come about in the past uh, 55 years so you as an economist journalist you will know that road pricing is regressive so the rich people will always be able to continue to drive and if you have road pricing it's the poor people who will be chucked off the road which is great because that's that's how motoring started it was the rich people motoring so rich people will think that's absolutely brilliant they can continue driving but it gets the, the the great majority of the population off the roads, and that's that's unfair. So how do you square that particular circle? How can you make road pricing not regressive? Well, I don't think it, it's... So it's regressive in the sense of who will stop motoring. You're right. Um, mm. The way it's not regressive is who will pay, because you're, the rich will pay, and they will be paying for the roads they use. And it is very much the case in the UK that the rich drive the furthest. Um, in the US, it's actually a bit more complicated because the rich choose to live in these kind of walkable neighborhoods like Manhattan or Brooklyn or mm -hmm. even where I live in Chicago is a wealthier neighborhood of Chicago where they don't have to drive as much and the poor are sort of pushed out by high property prices. Um, mm. But it's generally the case even in the US that, you know, the, other than the very richest, somewhat richer people drive much more than the poorest and the poorest drive the least. And so if you're charging for using the roads, it you will raise more money from the rich than from the poor. Um, and if you then spend that money, you know, in a kind of progressive way, you spend it on things that benefit the poor more than than the rich. It's a very progressive move to have road pricing. So I, I don't really accept the idea that, yeah, that it's regressive at all to have road pricing. I do 
um, I think it's true that yes, it will be people who can least afford to pay for the cost of driving who will drive less. But do we really want to be subsidizing driving? If you gave them the money instead, you know, if we then they would choose to spend it in some other way. But right now they sort of are subsidized to drive while being kept poor mm. in kind of other ways. So I, I think that's the thing. I also think about road pricing right now is that we should be talking about it an awful lot more because we have electric cars coming in and the cost of running electric mm. cars, you know, maybe not right now with electricity prices where they are in Britain. And um, But it, if we assume electricity prices get back to normal, then it's going to be a lot cheaper to run electric cars and they're heavier, so they damage the roads more. So we and they don't raise any money in petrol kind of duties taxes um at all so petrol taxes raise a lot less money than they used to you know a generation ago already and they're going to decline to nothing so i think we really need to be talking about road pricing quite urgently at the moment mm. just so that motorists are paying you know for the cost of the roads they're using so you talked about how electric cars are heavier and they are but that isn't that because you know the electric cars that are being sold now are in effect suvs and people are choosing to just, you know, go for the SUV they had with a, a petrol engine, and now they want an electric engine. So these things are very, very heavy when you're putting a, a, a battery and, and, and motors into an SUV. What we should be doing is somehow incentivizing much, much smaller cars. And that's, you talk about in, in Tokyo, how, you know, the, the, if people do own cars, then they own very, very small cars. So how can you, how can you switch people's, um, perceptions is you don't need an SUV and the, one of the reasons maybe people think they need SUVs is because you need a tank if you're going to be if it's a war on motorists you need a tank to be able to attack other motorists so you're safe in your little cocoon so how do you get people out of bigger and bigger and bigger cars there has been this enormous growth in the size of cars and I think you're absolutely right there's this kind of awful um, prisoner's dilemma where you know if Everybody else has got a giant car. You want to have a giant car too because you're worried about getting flattened in your small car. Mm. Um, but the thing that I think might change it is that these bigger cars are very expensive and the cost of cars has gone up tremendously. And for a while, essentially cheap finance um, was sort of making it possible for everybody to be able to buy one of these giant Audis because at least you were getting a kind of zero interest percent loan to pay for it. But that era is sort of over. And I think the car industry is going to have to grapple with the fact that people can't afford their products anymore. Um, one thing that, I, that I'm interested in at the moment that's happening in a bunch of American um, smaller towns, particularly in Florida, is that people have started driving golf carts golf on the roads to get around. Yeah, golf buggies. The villages. <laughs> Yeah, yes. but golf yes. buggies are replacing <laughs> cars for those sorts of mm. smaller journeys, particularly yeah, mm. in these retirement communities. And I kind of genuinely think there's there's something in that. We, you know, can get these small electric vehicles that are basically golf buggies that don't go very fast. Um, mm. You know, so they're not very dangerous to pedestrians. And particularly, you know, for those journeys that are that that we can't really get rid of kind of some form of motorized transport. You know, we're talking journeys for disabled people, perhaps, or very elderly people, um, where you do kind of want that door-to-door -door transport and, and they can't realistically have a bicycle. Um, I think a golf buggy is kind of great. It's much less dangerous to pedestrians. It uses much less energy. It's much less mm. polluting, damages the roads less. And 
And we could have golf buggies replace a huge number of journeys um, or smaller vehicles. And right now, the sorts of incent, the laws often pre prevent that. They say, you know, thing these smaller electric vehicles are not considered road safe um, or not considered legal on the road. Uh, regulations make kind of bigger cars often the only thing that's allowed. But that can change. And I think we should be doing more to encourage kind of smaller electric vehicles that weigh a lot less. So smaller electric vehicles i mean you, you do get these in amsterdam um and they use the bike paths unfortunately so they're not they're not actually you know these smaller vehicles aren't mixing with other vehicles on the road they're basically uh, taking space away from 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 cyclists so it needs to be some sort of incentive from the municipality in in whatever uh, city or country to incentivize the use of these vehicles but on roads rather than taking space away from from cyclists yeah, absolutely. I think the idea of putting golf buggies and then them using the bike lanes is so sort of perverse because bike lanes already, you know, occupy so little road space um, that, uh, that, yeah, just, just turning it back into a car lane for sort of slightly less bad cars is is going backwards um like i'm all for yeah replacing cars with electric buggies and things but on the roads and exactly as you say because they're treated as sort of you know like big bikes rather than small cars it's a completely sort of backwards way of, of, of doing it it's sometimes kind yeah. of not the way that electric bikes are going in that you know an awful lot of electric cargo bike companies they they like to stress that you know Okay, you can't. You say you can't carry crates of beer on a bike. Ah, look at our electric cargo bike. We've got thirty barrels of beer on the back. And you almost think, well, you've just invented a van. You know, yes, it's an electric cargo bike, and yes, it goes on a bike path. But if it can carry twenty barrels of beer, it's it's a white van. And and so you haven't really made much progress at, at all if that's all you you you're doing. So how do you get people? to get away from this size thing and and go small. And then obviously the smallest vehicle, bicycle, does it even have to be an electric bicycle? Can it not, not just be human powered? Uh, I mean, I'm all for the electric bicycles because I, I think that they, they radically change how much you can do with a bicycle. It just widens the range of which you're willing to cycle. Like I will happily go seven or eight miles on an, an electric bike, even just one of the rental ones that they have here in the city of Chicago. Um, whereas like, I don't really like to go more than sort of four or five on my own bicycle and I haven't bought an electric bicycle yet. But I think it's, a. I think the thing with cargo bikes, I think we're not there yet, but we will get to a stage if enough traffic begins to switch to electric bikes and to cargo bikes that we will go, hang on a minute, why are we leaving so much road space to to cars and not to bicycles and forcing all of this traffic onto this kind of you know these bike lanes that are occupying i don't know a quarter or of the road space um and we'll go wait a minute we can just use the road for all of these vehicles and if we begin to get rid of the big heavy cars um that are you know moving at 30 miles an hour or so then suddenly we, we radically increase the kind of capacity and we can get all of those electric cargo bikes just onto the normal roads um mm. and i think that you know while there is an element of okay they're reinventing a van the 
a big electric cargo bike, even the biggest ones, you know, that can transport all this sort of, you know, stuff, they, they're going to weigh at most kind of 100 kilograms, whereas your van will weigh 10 times that. So if you're hit, in, hit by one in a kind of crash, um, mm. it's, you know, it's way less dangerous. It's, it's far less likely to kill you. And they're not going more than, you know, I think 15 miles an hour or 20 miles an hour perhaps mm. in, here in America. And so, so I think there's still a radical improvement. Um, um, we should be encouraging stuff that's being moved around by van at the moment onto those things. But but we should also be thinking when when we get to that stage of having lots of them and the bike paths are all clogged up. And I think, you know, some of the bike paths in London are already reaching that mm. stage where we begin to go, hang on a minute, we, we should be having... You know, we'll put the cars in like one lane on their own uh, and the bikes mm. can have three lanes. Um, that's where I'd hope we can get to um, rather mm. than it being the other way around. <laughs> mm. And what do your colleagues think about these kind of ideas? What do they think about your book? Because I know in the acknowledgement you say there's at least one colleague <laughs> assumes you're going to be owning a car and driving around in a car you know, pretty soon. And I'm guessing you have some sort of bet with that person saying, no, 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 I'm not. So what do your colleagues think about your book and, uh, and your ideas? Because I'm assuming you had these ideas before you wrote a book. Oh, yes. And I've been writing this kind of stuff for a while. And I, I think, uh, you know, the economist's line is uh, generally in 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 maybe not completely as anti-militantly car as I am, but but is we are, you know, a paper, an organization that believes in free markets. And, you know, the way I've written the book and framed the book and the way I think about it is that there are a huge amount of hidden subsidies for cars, that this is not truly a free market. The government has been intervening to make driving the sort of best mm. way of getting around, the cheapest way of getting around, and it wouldn't be in a kind of natural market economy. Um, and we should stop subsidizing driving and, and economically we can all be better off. So that's the, the, the way I try and make the case, you know, in economist editorial meetings. But I am a, I, I believe mm. in the stuff that The Economist says too. And that's also how I've tried to make the case in the book. I see it as like, you know, I won't say a conservative, but there's a libertarian case against cars. Mm. Right now as a taxpayer, you are paying for roads whether you use them or not. You know, you're paying for, you're being forced to buy parking spaces, whether you want them or not. We're all forced to pay for this driving infrastructure, whether we use it or not, and we shouldn't be. So as I said before about how can, you know, even the most libertarian of conservatives are, are completely socialist when it comes to cars, do, does that concept never really hit home? Do people not understand that motoring is just incredibly subsidized you know the roads the 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 fuel you put into these cars it's incredibly subsidized and as you said everybody else is paying for that do, do, do you have conversations with conservatives who really cannot get that or deep down they know that but they'd rather not talk about it so I do think there are conservatives who get it. I met a few. Um, funnily, in America, I think you get more um, support at times um, for things like uh, tolling on roads from conservatives 
then, you know, from Democrats. Um, there's this kind of idea of like, well, the, the government shouldn't pay for a road, the motorist should, is somehow is more accepted sometimes in conservative circles. I think when it comes to city streets, you know, the, the big problem is it's less actually conservatives against liberals or against left-wingers um, as suburbanites and rural areas against cities. That's the kind of dividing line on this. Um, but I, I wrote a story last year about a Republican mayor of a town in Indiana who very much gets this. And he's um, he's very famous. The town's called Carmel. And he's very famous for installing roundabouts. And this town has more roundabouts than any American city. But he's he completely gets this idea that when you um, are using up land for, for parking, you generate less tax revenue. And I think it's going to kind of become apparent in America in coming years that you um, a lot of cities um, and suburbs that rely on you know, that are so car-centric, spend so much money on maintaining their roads um, and that they can't cover other services. And it's way more efficient to um, to kind of be dense, to be densely populated. And in the UK, obviously, where we don't have so much kind of local funding um, for government and it's much more of a centralised system, you know, it's clearly the case that kind of London pays a lot more in taxes than it gets out because it's more efficient um, in the way it's... in To be less car-centric is economically better. It means more people can get to jobs in a particular area because when you rely on cars, essentially, before you can become a big enough city to to have all of the kind of, you know, to, to generate those sorts of really good jobs, you get sort of strangled by congestion. And I think people are beginning to realise that sort of everywhere. And... The conservative backlash against cars, I think it comes less from sort of ideological views, because I think sometimes they do recognize that, but it, it comes from worries about, you know, the fact that conservatives are thri thrive and do better in those kind of low density suburbs or rural areas where people already have cars. So even those conservatives who do sort of know it, as you first suggested, often they're trying not to, they don't want to say it. Because mm. there is this myth not so much, I don't know about the US so much, but certainly in the UK, there's, there's this kind of myth that, you know, being pro-car is conservative, is is right-leaning, and, and bringing out anti-car is left-leaning. It's absolutely not the case, you know, that throughout the history of the motor car, the Labour Party has been, if not more pro-car than, than the Conservative Party. It's certainly been up there with them, you know, the the the... the, the the theory of you know every working family should have a motor car is embedded completely in the, in the Wilsonian economics of you know everybody should be owning a motor car because that's good for workers, right? Completely, and it's good for the car industry, you know. Which, if you went mm. back to Wilson, was a huge employer and uh, a, a big supporter of the Labour Party, and perhaps a, a little less so now. But I think it's support or opposition to cars is, is generally. Um, cross-party and uh, that's the case in the UK it's certainly the case in in the US and I think the big divide is it's it's local it's um, you know the politicians who are sort of supportive of LTNs and things I, I think are tend to be more urban and I think there is a bit of a divide emerging in the UK between the conservatives who obviously have not raised fuel duty in you know mm. 13 years and have lent more and more into this kind of anti-LTN anti 
pro-car kind of um, model of development. But of course, remember, the LTNs came in under a conservative government. Um, so the, the sort of funding for it came from, from, from central government, from Whitehall, to, to, to put these things in. And you have this funny thing of the conservatives, I think, at a national level, sometimes sort of encouraging quite good policy and then fighting it at a local level by going, it's this Labour council that's done this thing that, that our government mm. paid you to do. Um, so it's all a bit confused, the politics of cars right now and I think it's going to stay like that for a while um, uh, it's not going to become one way or the other sort of dominant anti-car from one party and pro from another um, uh, ignore all the stuff that comes with him and, and mention of this person's name but do you think we just have a would have a much better chance of actually having this Tokyo style future if Boris Johnson was a still prime minister and was you know the the world king that he he aspired to be he he would have brought in a lot of these policies he did bring in a lot of these policies and actually not having him there makes the conservative party far far more likely to be anti ltn to be pro motoring whereas johnson was a you know going in the right direction I think, yeah, Boris Johnson's legacy on cycling in London is really extraordinary. We shouldn't discount that. You know, he started out with the cycle superhighways, which were all painted and not very good, and got a load of criticism, and to his credit, went and built proper ones. Um, and uh, on the other hand, he did get rid of the... Um, of the kind of Western congestion charge zone. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, in, in London, Sadiq Khan has been a bit of a mixed kind of bag too. He um, he is expanding the clean air area, the ULES, and I think that's all positive. But he also did change the hours, reduce the hours of the congestion charge that had been expanded back again um, so that it doesn't operate as late in the evening uh, as before. So it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think, yeah, we, but if Boris Johnson... I think was a positive thing for cycling uh, for the Conservative Party, and and that that's something that that is now almost completely gone, um, mm. and that's unfortunate. Um, sort of everything else aside uh, about Boris Johnson, I'm less sure about. You know. <laughs> mm. So you mentioned Sadiq Khan there, and that's actually I can I can segue this into where I want to end this podcast anyway. But let, let me just talk about Sadiq Khan because he wrote a book recently. Mm about his climate credentials, about how climate-friendly he is. And yes, he, he did uh, water down some of the uh, the congestion charge things, but more than anything, he, he will go down in history, not for his climate stuff, but for his building of the Silvertown Tunnel, this amazing tunnel that can only do what you've mentioned in your book frequently, the induced demand. It will only increase motor car journeys. So no matter how many... Uh, eco-friendly things he brings in, he will remembered in history for bringing a socking great uh, road tunnel into London, which pretty much isn't actually needed and will just generate more traffic. Is is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think Khan fits into the model of an awful lot of kind of left-leaning politicians at the moment who really concerned about climate change. They are concerned about air pollution, that sort of thing, but are leaning very heavily on the sort of the car industry solution, which is, oh, we'll just electrify everything, you know. Mm. And so the ULES is really good, but that's about older cars. And if you have a newer car, you're still fine to drive. And mm. I think that 
the case I'm hoping to make with this book is, is particularly targeted at those sorts of centre-left and, and left politicians in cities to say, you know, um, yeah, we do want to change cars to electric cars, but you should be really taking this moment to try and say we should have less cars too. And there should be more alternative ways of getting around. Because I worry that we're at a sort of moment where we're going to completely transform our sort of um, transport model by changing, you know, um, from petrol cars to electric cars. But, other, but that's all we're going to do. Um, and we could, you know, use this moment to go, maybe we don't all need to drive quite as much as we do. Hmm. I think you make a very strong case in the book and it, it, there's a thread throughout and then there are explicit mentions about the, the climate catastrophe that is in, in large part is being brought by by the motor car. And even if we have, elect, as you're saying, electric or, or even driverless, which will actually, as you say in the book, will, will bring more journeys, not 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 fewer. So climate can let, let's let's wrap this up by talking about how you know the carmageddon part of the book is you know like the end of the world the armageddon type stuff is the climate crisis and if we continue i think you actually say in there where were you uh, uh we okay i picked this bit out so we do not have to this is your words we do not have to be so reliant on gasoline and cooking the planet to be able to live uh, decent lifestyles the important thing is not moving metal it is moving people. And that was absolutely a climate change. So so wrap up how your book is the, the lots of ills in this world that comes with 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 cars. But one of the chief ones is absolutely climate change. Yeah. And, you know, there are currently about one point five billion cars in the world. And imagine, you know, if, if we everybody drove at sort of British or um, American rates of driving, we'd have six or seven billion cars in the world, and they all need to be powered and fueled. And that is going to, you know, that already the number of cars is going up and the emissions they produce is going up. We are managing to reduce the emissions from our power plants, um, from our sort of uh, other forms of, of transport, but from from cars, they are going up and cars both directly produce emissions, but even if we electrify them, when we are all dependent on our cars, we live farther apart in more sort of sprawling cities and we use more energy in every other way. And if you look at, you know, people in Paris or in New York produce far less CO2 from everything that they do, not just from their transport, compared to people who live in, say, Houston or Birmingham. Um, because they live closer together. And people in New York have lovely lives. Um, people really want to live there. You know, the cost of living is high because it's such a popular place to live. So if we can kind of live in less car-centric lives, it won't only reduce the emissions, you know, that we currently produce driving. It will reduce all of our emissions on everything. We will use less energy heating our homes, use less energy getting things delivered, you know, less energy um, kind of moving our running our water kind of delivery systems whatever it might be uses less energy so moving to a kind of less car centric world is a way of reducing our climate emissions dramatically and i think for the rest of the the world the poor world right now which you know we want to become rich we want people in india or in africa to be able to have the lifestyles that that we aspire to uh sorry that we have in the rich world um we want to have lifestyles like those in manhattan not those in houston because if everybody in the world tries to live a lifestyle mm -hmm. like in houston the whole planet's 
toast. We are cooked. There is nothing we can do. Mm. And the people, let's, I'm, I'm going to go rope right back into my 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 Desmond uh, people who who. who by and large, it's a it's a it's a middle class area. People know and and absolutely when they when they mention on pet petitions that they are uh, against the LTN, they mention that uh, they're not climate change conspiracy theorists. They believe in climate change, but LTNs make climate change worse because it makes people drive further because you're you're shunting people onto to these other roads and they can't in effect run through the. The local neighbourhoods. So, what do you say to people who who would agree with you that climate change is a, a, an absolutely pressing, the pressing uh, argument of the day, but who still want to continue driving because they don't think that's actually affecting climate change, and if anything, LTNs, you know, actually increase emissions. What people think they're going to do. And what they actually do are very different. People respond to incentives much more than they think. And so, yeah, when you introduce an LTM, what people think will happen is, oh, well, everybody will just drive a longer way to get around. You know, they'll they'll still drive. Um, but what actually happens is that people go, oh, well, I might as well just walk. Um, a good example of this, I have a personal example I think I mentioned in the book, was when Birmingham introduced this um, uh, kind of high... Um, uh, this charge on driving an older car, a bit like a ULEZ of its own, into the city mm. centre. My parents have a very old diesel car that they drive very infrequently. But my dad's view was, oh, this is just a tax grab. Um, you know, it's, this is just a way of making money. People are still going to drive in. But I'm going to avoid the tax. And he went out and bought an electric bike. And he never drives into the city centre anymore. He's like, no, obviously I can't pick you up from the train station. That's eight quid. I'm not paying that. <laughs> um, and, you know, my, my dad barely drives anymore but he's still kind of used to be a bit of a motorhead as he said he was a traffic cop um he's still got a motorbike that he takes out on holidays and things and he for, for him i think to realize that yeah the, the, how his own behavior would change um and then getting this electric bike and using it a lot more and all but stopping driving um it you know that that kind of persuaded him but a lot of people yeah they think that before this charge comes in, they think, oh, well, um, obviously, I, I, um, this will this will just lead to more traffic. We'll all drive more. But the reality is that yeah, you, you just change and you adapt and you drive less. And after a while, it seems completely insane that you ever did those journeys in your car to begin with. Well, you've convinced me, Daniel. But then again, I didn't need a great deal of convincing, as you can possibly imagine. Uh, but hopefully you'll be able to convince other people. And I'm guessing people who listen to this podcast are also uh, going to be uh, attuned with, with your concepts um, and, and will agree with you. And, and we quite like people who don't agree with, with, uh, with this concept to read your book. But anyway, let's find out where we can get hold of your book and, and give us also, uh, as well as the, the, the publisher details, because and, and, it's, it's new for the UK, isn't it? It's, it's like it's been out in the US, but now it's new for the UK. And then finally, tell us your social media handle 
so where people can can contact you. So yeah, so the book's releasing in the UK next week, um, and it's primarily available on like the Kindle platform. Um, you can also get a hardback. Um, you can order that on Amazon. But if you if you ask your bookshop, they will probably be able to to get a copy too. Um, more uh, bookshops are beginning to stock it, which is quite pleasant. Um, but yeah, the publisher is an American publisher, Abrams Press, and I'm basically publishing it myself in the UK. So um, so it's getting out there, but it's it's uh, uh, but you might have to ask for it. So if you want a hardback copy, and social media. Um, so on social media, I'm on Twitter at DL Knowles. Um, Knowles is with a K. Uh, and uh, yeah, and you can read my writing in The Economist as well in the United States section. Can so, we? Because do, do they don't have names on, do they? We don't have names, but if it's got, if it's got a Chicago dateline, it will be written by me. So you can usually guess what's mine. Or if it's about how cars are bad, it's definitely by me. Thanks to Daniel Knowles there, and thanks to you for listening to episode 331 of The Spokesman Podcast, brought to you in association with Turn Bicycles. Show notes and more can be found at the-spokesman.com. The next episode will be out in July. But meanwhile, get out there and ride. 